All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I am your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm joined by Suin Lee. Suin is a professor at the Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Washington. Before we get going, be sure to take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. Suin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the introduction. I'm looking forward to digging into our talk. You are an invited speaker at the uh, 2023 ICML workshop on computational biology. And we'll be talking about your talk there, which is really centered around your research into explainable AI, an important topic. But before we jump into that, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in the field. Thank you so much. So... My lab is currently working on a broad spectrum of a problem, for example, developing explainable AI techniques, so that's a core machine learning. And then we also work on identifying cause and treatment of challenging diseases, such as cancer and Alzheimer's disease, so that's computational biology. And then also we develop clinical diagnosis or auditing uh, frameworks for clinical AI. And then you asked about how I got into this field. So... I was trained as a machine learning researcher. When I was a PhD student, I was working on the problem of dealing with high-dimensional data. And then at that time, when I was a PhD student at Stanford, in computational, the field of computational biology, there was something really exciting happened, something called the microarray data. So it's a gene expression data that measures expression levels of 20,000 genes. And I suddenly thought that if you know machine learning researchers develop a powerful and effective method to identify cause of diseases such as cancer and then therapeutic targets for, you know, those diseases, then, you know, as a machine learning researcher, I can contribute hugely to the science and also medicine. And then I just fell in love with this field. So that's how I got into the research at the intersection of computational machine learning and computational biology. After I got a job at the University of Washington that has a very strong medical school, and then I had uh, wonderful colleagues, amazing people who had medical data, electronic health records, and then introduced me to this field of you know, EHR data analysis in various clinical departments, anesthesiology and dermatology, and then uh, emergency medicine. And then I just got really interested into the possibility, the potential that AI researchers or machine learning researchers, myself and my students can contribute to medicine. That's how I got mm. into this field of largely three fields. So one is machine learning and AI, and the second is computational biology and then clinical medicine. You probably thought that you had to deal with messy data when you were in clinical biology and computational biology until you saw some of that EHR data that data can be very messy. It is. The goals of the fields are slightly different to each other, but in the future, I strongly believe that those two fields will merge, biology and medicine. So in a clinical side, people are already, researchers are already generating the biological, molecular biology data from patients. So for example, for cancer patients, you can think about measuring the gene expression levels or genetic data from those cancer patients. And then what you want is the treatment. You know, you want the AI or machine learning models to tell you, you know, which treatment 
which drug, anti-cancer drugs are going to work the best for that particular patient. That For that, you definitely need a biological knowledge and then, mm-hmm. you know, actual mechanistic understanding of cancer. Mm-hmm. And what says to you that the fields will will merge as opposed mm-hmm. to kind of collaborate closely? Clearly, they need to collaborate closely. But when I think of merge, mm-hmm. and maybe I'm taking this too far, I'm thinking of like single models that operate in both domains. Yeah, I know what you're saying. So I tell my students or, you know, other young people that to actually move the field forward, to advance this field of biology, medicine, or biomedical sciences, you really need to become a bilingual researcher Mm, or even mm -hmm. trilingual these days, you know, computer science plus biology plus medicine. When you are, you have one brain that really thinks like, you know, machine learning researchers and biologists and then clinical experts, it's, you know, usually that really helps to come up with creative approach and that can really move the field to benefit patients. And then at the end, the ultimate goal of a biology and molecular biology is to understand life better so that you can advance the health of uh, humans, right? So mm-hmm. I think, you know, collaborations definitely help, but at the end, we really need to think about how to produce these young researchers so that they really think like, you know, experts in, in this, this area. These things, you know, already happened earlier in computational biology than clinical medicine. And when I was doing the PhD, it was usually based on collaborations, you know, people who was trained right. primarily as a machine learning researcher and people who was trained as molecular biologists uh, who hold, you know, pipette and they work in the wet labs and then they form a collaboration and then, you know, write papers. But then later, you know, we see a lot of departments that's named, you know, computational biology or, you know, biomedical science departments. So it's a really healthy move for, you mm-hmm. know, this kind of interdisciplinary fields. It makes total difference. Yeah. Your research and again, your presentation at the conference are focused on explainable AI, XAI. Tell us a, a little bit about some of the, the things that you think are most important about explainability as, a, as applied to these fields. I think we get that machine learning and models in general can be opaque and make important high stakes decisions. You need some degree of explainability. Uh, but what's unique about your take in applying applicability in your field? Right. Okay. Thank you. That's an excellent question. So the core part of uh, explainable AI, at least, you know, this theoretical framework, it basically means the feature attributions. So you have a, imagine you have a black box model, you have a set of input, a vector X, and then you have an output Y. And then when you have a prediction, you want to find a way to attribute to features. You want to know which features contributed the most. And then, you know, there are mathematical frameworks. Our particular approach that's called the SHAP framework, it is based on game theory. So you want to find a way to understand which features are important. So that's the core of the technical side of explainable AI. And then on the other hand, if, if you just apply this explainable AI technique, you know, off the shelf explainable AI algorithm to biology, mostly it's useless. It's not very useful. It's not useful in terms of biological insights. 
what you really want to understand is how these features, you know, collaborate with each other. Imagine that you have a set of genes as a features. You have 20,000 genes, 20,000 expression levels are the input of the black box model. And then your prediction is which cancer drug is going to work the best for each patient. And then individual genes contributions and then gene importance scores by themselves, they are not going to be really useful. It will be only useful when some explainable AI model, explainable AI algorithm can tell you which pathway, how genes collaborate with each other and then how genetic factors play a role into that. And then also how that leads to the good prognosis of the cancer patient and also sensitivity, the good responsiveness to that drug. So there is something missing there. And then the uniqueness of my research is that we want to develop this explainable AI method for biology and then also clinical medicine such that it can make you know real meaningful contribution to these fields. Another example in the medicine side is that imagine that you have a deep model, deep neural network, that's going to take you a dermatology image. So say that you find something, you know, something unusual on your skin and that you take a picture, that's your dermatological image. And then let's say that you want to know that has a features of a melanoma or not. So the prediction results itself is not going to be really useful. And then even, you know, the current explainable AI methods that's going to tell you which pixels, which parts of the images led to the prediction of a melanoma or not, those are not going to be very useful to understand how this black box model really works. When you try, for example, that, you know, you modify the image and then generate a counterfactual, small changes to the image such that it changes the prediction. Let's say that that changed the prediction from melanoma to normal. Only then you can understand how this this model works, what the reasoning process of this black box machine learning model is like. So those, you know, examples, I'm going to, I'm going to show, you know, many examples like that. Because basically the message there is going to be that the current state of the art explainable AI, but that tells you theoretically supported importance values for the features are not going to be enough to make meaningful contributions to both biological science and then also clinical medicine as well. It sounds like you're calling out a broad deficiency in the approach and kind of saying that as opposed to this feature level explainability, we need more system level or process level explainability that is uh, more grounded in the the use cases or the application than what we have available today. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The question is how to do that. So that for that, Uh we need a new explainable AI method. So in the first part of the talk, I'm going to I'm going to show many examples of, you know, what explainable AI uh, almost as is can do. So those are the papers that were, we, we published a couple of years ago or, and then addresses to, to, so that it addresses new scientific questions, even explainable AI or, you know, feature attribution methods as is can be useful. So I'm going to show many examples like that in both biology and medicine. But in the second part of the talk, I'm going to show, you know, how explainable AI can even open new research directions in specifically for biology and healthcare. So those examples I showed you, you know, the systems level insights or, you know, this counterfactual image generation 
that can facilitate collaboration with humans, in this case, a clinical experts. So in the second part of the talk, I'm going to I'm going to show how this, you know, explainable AI can open new research directions. And then part of the second part will be, I'm going to have a deep dive into our recent paper to highlight, you know, how explainable AI can help cancer medicine design, cancer therapy design. So basically how to choose two chemotherapy drugs that's going to have a synergy for a particular patient. So that's the paper that was recently published in Nature Biomedical Engineering. Before we dig into that paper, the most recent paper, can you talk us through in a little bit more detail some of the examples of your the foundational machine learning research and how they contribute to the problems you're trying to solve? Mm, okay. So some of the foundational AI methods we developed, I'm going to talk about, it can be summarized into three parts. So one is, you know, principled understanding of current explainable AI methods, so specifically feature attribution methods. So for example, in one work, we showed that our feature attribution method, that's a SHAP, it was published in NeurIPS in 2017. We showed that it unifies a large portion of the explainable AI literature and 25 methods following the exact same principle and all explaining by removing features. So it turned out that 25 methods, feature attribution methods that are widely used in the field and machine learning applications, they all go by the same principle. You want to assess the importance of each feature by removing them or removing subsets of them. So that helps us understand you know, what goes on. For example, when they fail, you want to understand what goes on and also improve and then develop new explainable AI methods. So we, I'm going to introduce, you know, a couple of unifying frameworks. So this is about how to understand the principled understanding of uh, feature attribution methods. So also on a computational side, we have explored many avenues to make this SHAP computation even feasible and faster. So SHAP stands for Shapley Additive I suddenly forgot. I can't forget this. Explanations. <laughs> yes, the Shapley Additive Explanation. So that's... It, it's uh, kind of weird because they chose the third letter <laughs> or, <laughs> of the, uh, <laughs> the word. Well, that's, that's the first author, my student, you know, Scott's <laughs> choice. And then I love the name, by the way. But computing Shap value is theoretically very well, you know, supported. But then, you know, computation-wise, it's not, it's not really easy to compute. It involves exponential computation. So we need to develop approximation methods such, such that we can compute them in a feasible manner. So we developed many, you know, fast statistical estimation approaches. And then you want to make sure that they, there is a convergence and then all the theoretical, desirable theoretical properties are already there. And then also we developed approaches for, you know, specific model types, for example, ensemble tree models, and then also deep neural networks. So we have a deep shape and then Shap, and then more recently, we also have a vision transformer Shapley. So that's a mm. way to compute the Shapley values for transformers, vision transformers. And then there is another one that's called a fast Shap. So the one way to make the you know Shap computation more feasible is to focus on specific particular aspect of models. So for example, you know, uh, tree ensembles or deep neural network, they have some 
particular model types, there is a way to, you know, make this computation a little, you know, faster, you know, basically make, uh, so, so for model example, specific versions of a SHAP implementation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So that's another line of research. And then more recently, we also started to understand the robustness of the SHAP value. So adversarial attack. A few years ago, you know, in the field of machine learning, people, you know, researchers have uh, tried to understand how robust the machine learning model itself, the prediction results are toward adversarial attacks. And then now we are looking into this issue in terms of the model explanations. So how feature attributions are robust. So in our most recent paper, we basically showed the removal-based approaches, including SHAP. So I, earlier I said, you know, many of the feature attribution methods turned out to be to have the same principle, which is explaining by removal. So those those line of, you know, that uh, methods is more robust to this kind of adversarial attacks. So, and then, you know, multimodality, you know, those other kinds of issues, we are actively doing this research in terms of, you know, foundational AI algorithms also. Mm-hmm. And SHAP, as you've mentioned, is broadly used, both the original algorithm as well as its the, the related algorithms, as you described. But it's also one of the, the first explainability approaches to be popularized. Where does it sit in terms of relevance? Are there different, kind of wholly different approaches that have overtaken it in popularity or applicability based on kind of today's models and, and applications, or is SHAP still kind of the, a core approach to the way explainability is looked at in practice? It's more on the later side. We believe that this uh, removal-based approach and then this cooperative game theory, we really believe in that. And then also it has the desirable properties, first of all. And then we, in our many experiments, we still see that Removal-based approaches are more, you know, robust, as I said, mm-hmm. you know, there's adversarial attacks. And then also in terms of a various evaluation criteria, we still think that those methods are more robust than the other class, which we characterized as a propagation-based approach or gradient-based approaches. So we would prefer these removal-based approaches. But on the other hand, those approaches are very computationally very intensive. So well, the way SHAP works is basically that, you know, you try all subset of features and then you add a feature of interest and then see the model, check the model output and you average across all subsets of features. So you, as you can imagine, it's computationally very intensive. So mm-hmm. when we now think about, you know, foundational models or large language models, it is, you know, right. really large models of a ton, a lot of parameters. And then deep neural network and, you know, gradient computation is perhaps easier than trying all subsets of features, right? So practically, it's not, you know, as easy as the other class in terms of the computation, but we still, you know, want to make this computation more feasible. We want to develop various, you know, clever approaches to reduce the computation and then still maintain the desirable theoretical properties that this removal-based approach or, you know, SHAP in particular has. Got it. And so that is an example of kind of the foundational research that your lab does that 
contributes not only to your work on the biological science side or computational biology side, but broadly to the field. And then your more recent paper is an example of the kind of contributions you're making on the medicine side. Can you talk a little bit about that cancer paper? Yeah, sure. It is about AML. So we chose AML as an example application. So it's acute myeloid leukemia. It's aggressive blood cancer. Um, and it's uh, relatively common for, you know, old, older people. So to give you a bit of a background in general, the cutting edge in the treatment of cancers, such as AML, has increasingly become combination therapy. So the rationale here is that, you know, by choosing drugs that target complementary biological pathways, we can achieve greater anti-cancer efficacy. So basically you choose two or three chemotherapy drugs and then use them together so that when there there is a synergy it's usually there is a very good you know anti-cancer efficacy so but the issue is that choosing optimal combinations of drugs is a really hard problem so there are about hundreds of individual FDA approved anti-cancer drugs which means that there will be tens of thousands of possible combinations but when mm-hmm. you you know consider pairwise combination, and there could be even more if you consider non-FDA approved experimental drugs in development, or you know consider a combination of more than two drugs. Right. So and then you know the different patients, even patients who have the same type of cancer, may respond differently to exact same drugs because of this individual the particular genomic characteristics. So then formulate this problem as a machine learning problem. So you take this AML patient to gene expression levels. So you get the blood of the patient and then you know purify the cells so you have only cancer cells and then say you measure expression levels of 20,000 genes. So mathematically, this is 20,000 dimensional vector. And then also, let's say you have uh, you consider a pair of drugs drugs a and b and then you use various you know uh, information about this drug for example structure of these drugs or their biological target there are many data sets that can tell you that information and then you take those as a machine learning input and then you want to predict the synergy between the drugs a and b so in this kind of a problem, and then as I said, you know, there will be tens of thousands of, you know, pairwise combination of those drugs. And so in this kind of situation, not only the prediction, but also explanations will be extremely important. So say you want to be able to say that drug A and B is going to work well, are going to have a synergy together because this patient X has gene expression levels of A and A, B and C high. And then, or, you know, say expression levels of a certain biological pathway, those genes are highly expressed. So you need a set of explanation to do that. And then more importantly, if you think about, you know, all pairs of drugs, if there is an underlying principle in terms of when two drugs are likely to have a synergy, then it's going to be even more useful. So what we did in this paper was that we got the explanations. We computed the shaft values for many combinations of drugs from the machine learning model. And then we analyzed that. And then we identified the unifying principle in terms of, you know, when, in what case, drugs, any pair of drugs A and B have a synergy. And then we identified a pathway. It is called 
stemness pathway. So uh, it is also called, trying to find in that part of the slide, this hematopoietic uh, stem cell-like signature. You know, cancers are sometimes more differentiated or less, less differentiated. If you had a you know, family member who had a cancer, you probably understand this term. So usually less differentiated cancers have a worse prognosis than more differentiated cancers. So we identify this pathway that's really relevant to this stemness mechanism and then found the underlying principle, sort of, which basically says that it's good to have two drugs, one drug targeting less differentiated, the other one targeting more differentiated cancer are likely to work the best. So in this project, not only our algorithm can tell oncologists or biological scientists which genes are important, which feature attributions, which features are important for drug synergy, but also by analyzing many model explanations from many patients, we can, we can have an understanding of these underlying principles in terms of what makes a you know, successful drug combination therapy. Cancer therapy design, I would say, this is explainable. You know, this is an example where we can see how explainable AI can be you know, effective in cancer therapy design. Is AML unique in having a well-understood pathway? Or is that a, a bottleneck for the ap- application of this technique to the broader set of cancers? Oh, so AML is just one example. I mean, this kind of a principle mm-hmm. can be applied to, to many data sets. You know, computational biologists often need to work on the problem where the data are available. So, mm-hmm. you know, as you can imagine, blood cancers, those, you know, tissues are relatively easy to it's relatively easier to obtain, you know, blood tissues compared to other kinds of tissues. So there are many available, you know, data sets. And then also the, you know, measurement of the drug synergy from many samples. So we happen to choose this cancer type because of the data availability. But this principle, you know, this approach can be uh, broadly applicable to other types of cancer. So this is one of the... asking... I may be trying to get a broader question, which is the explainability method is kind of explaining over a set of known features and pathways and processes and, and things like that. And my sense is that for many of the potential applications, the pathways are still a subject of research themselves, meaning, you know, maybe there's some aspect of pathway that's known, but there are others. There are, you know, or some diseases for which there aren't pathways. And I guess I'm wondering the way you think about applying techniques like this in a, mm-hmm. a, a is that actually the case or am I all wrong there? But otherwise, mm-hmm. how, how will you apply techniques like this in rapidly evolving fields that are very complex? Meaning that's an excellent question. You know, maybe you're giving an an explanation and the explanation is based on the pathway as you understand it, but there's so many other things going on in the system that you really have not accounted for. Yeah, exactly. Right. So first of all, pathway is not unique to disease. So when we say, you know, pathway databases, it basically Mm. tells you the members of the genes in each pathway. That's it. I mean, it's like, you know, many, many sets of genes. We also sometimes call it gene sets. It doesn't depend on the disease. And then the way we view is that it's not like all genes need to be activated for the pathway needs to be activated. It will be only a subset of genes. 
Okay. We would expect only a subset of genes to be highly expressed to say, you know, that pathway is activated. And then it's really extremely important for computational biologists when we develop, you know, method like this to get biological insights from large scale data sets. When we develop such a method, we need to make sure that it does not fully depend on any sort of prior knowledge. And then the algorithm needs to be flexible. So that's, that's of key importance. So in this particular example, we, you know, we didn't use a pathway actually from the beginning. When the model training happens, we used, you know, genes as individual features. And then okay. we analyzed the feature attributions and then did the statistical test to see which pathways uh, seem to be more activated. You made a really good point. In all computational biology methods, it's really important not to make it too rigid for the existing knowledge. It needs to be flexible. Mm -hmm. And so how do you evaluate your results in this particular paper? Oh, so say that you have a feature attributions for all genes for a certain patient and then for a certain combination of drugs. And then say you will have a lot of feature attributions then, right? Combining all patients and then all pairs of drugs you considered. And then we performed a statistical test. So for example, it's a simple, you know, features exact test kind of statistical test where you see whether there is significantly, you know, large value of attribution values for certain set of genes defined by certain pathway. And then you do, you know, multiple hypothesis testing and then see whether that, you know, significance is, in, is indeed is relevant. So the pathway-based analysis was done in a post-hoc manner after model training and then obtaining all, you know, model explanations. So another challenge we ran into in that project was that was really not addressed properly by this foundational AI field was feature correlation. So in many biomedical data sets, you will see lots of features that are correlated with each other. Many genes are correlated. It's a really modular gene expression, you know, levels are very modular. So you easily see, you know, subset of genes that are very highly correlated with each other. So okay. in that kind of case, sharp values are not going to be extremely accurate because, you know, imagine that there are two genes that are perfectly correlated with each other, then there will be infinite ways to attribute to these two genes, right? So in that paper, in that nature biomedical engineering paper, we addressed it by considering ensemble model. So we ran many ensemble of ex model explanations. So we ran the model. In this case, it was not your deep neural network. It was three ensembles. And then we averaged, we averaged the feature attributions that are from many models. And then we showed that it gives you more robust feature attributions when the features are correlated with each other. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So talk a little bit about where you see the, the future of your research going. Uh, that's, a, that's a really important question. So in all three ways, so first of all, you know, in the Foundational AI method, as I as I briefly mentioned, you know this robustness issues, and then also multi-model data. Let's say that you have a set of features, and each feature belongs to different category. They are in different modality, and then how to attribute to these you know features that are in different modalities? So that's mm -hmm. that's an open problem. Yeah. So it was actually motivated by biomedical 
problem, but it's widely applicable, broadly applicable to other applications. And then also this emerging models of, you know, LLMs or other, you know, foundational models. And in this kind of, you know, really large models, how to, how to actually compute the feature attributions properly. And then also we are really interested in sample based importance to say that you, you know, transpose the matrix transpose of your feature matrix. So I've been talking about this feature attributions a lot, but you can also apply Shapley values to gain insights into which samples are important for your model training. So that can help us understand how, you know, foundational models in various fields or large language models rely on which training samples. So they can be really important for model auditing perspective, first of all, and then to, you know, gain insight in terms of, you know, which samples were important for these large models to behave a certain way, right? So sample-based explanation is also one of the things that we are mainly working on. In the biomedical side, uh, many projects. So in a, a single cell data science is one of the big themes in my lab now. So you obtain, you know, gene expression levels or other kinds of, you know, molecular level information at a single cell level. So the advantage is that you will have a ton of samples. So one experiment is going to give you many samples, which is really appropriate for <laughs> large scale models these days based on team neural networks, right? So for example, the researchers started looking into foundational model for single cell data set. So in this kind of, you know, data sets that have uh, still, you know, high dimensional. And then researchers are now obtaining multi-omic data. So not only gene expressions, you can also obtain other kinds of, you know, genomic information. So that's going to increase the dimensionality also. And then large sample sizes, how to, how to learn the biologically interpretable representation space. So that's, that's one of the big questions in my lab, in the research in my lab. So all, you know, feature attribution methods at the end in the down, downstream prediction task, you attribute to features. And then the assumption is that each feature is an interpretable unit. In biology, as I mentioned earlier, it's not the case in biology, right? So the, you know, functional units in biology is much more interpretable than in the, any individual genes. So how to learn this kind of, you know, the features that have more broadly, representation, feature representation space that's biologically more interpretable. And then also how to make, you know, foundational models learned based on single cell data sets. So researchers started this publishing those papers that are about applying this foundational model approach to single cell data sets. And then, you know, how to make it biologically interpretable so that you can gain right. scientific insights from the model results and then also audit those, uh, those models to make sure that, you know, users can actually safely use them for, you know, scientific discoveries. So attribution methods for this kind of, you know, modern machine learning models so that you can gain biological insights. So that's another theme. In a clinical side, we are really interested in this model auditing. In our most recent paper that's in, you know, in review, we are focusing on dermatology example. So dermatological image is inputted into deep neural network, and then you want to 
you want to know whether that's, you know, the prediction result is melanoma or not. There are many algorithms out there, some published in very, you know, high profile uh, medical journals and then also some available through the cell phone apps. So there are many algorithms. And then we recently tested them with, you know, separate the held out uh, tested samples and then got the result that's a little, you know, concerning in terms of, you know, usage. So, and then our analysis showed that explainable AI was extremely helpful. So for example, you know, in the skin image, which part of the image led to that kind of a prediction? Or uh, as I said, you know, using this counterfactual image generation. So you make small changes to the, dermat- the input dermatology image such that it changes. It crosses the decision boundary of the classifier and then see what features were changes. So that way you can see the reasoning process of this classifier, the clinical AI model, right? So for that, there needs to be some, you know, technological development there because the feature attributions themselves are not going to be enough. It, it shows only very small part of the inner workings of the machine learning model. Yeah. So developing, you know, methods for auditing clinical AI models, that's another, you know, that's the research we are currently performing in the clinical area. So all three areas, we are, we are doing ex- exciting research. Well, so when it sounds like you've got a lot of work ahead of you. Yes. Yeah. Very busy. I bet. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.